Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. John chapter 7. Now there's some stuff here, as you can see that little boxed-in section on the front page. There's some stuff here that Mark covered not that awful long ago. I think it was less than a year ago probably, and he was going through the different feasts of Israel, and he spent a whole Bible study evening on the Feast of Tabernacles. And so um, I am deferring to him on some of these things um, because he did a really good job. And I, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to be able to mention these things regarding the Feast of Tabernacles, but I didn't want it to be the focus of this lesson here tonight. We're going to see. I don't know if we'll get through it or not. There's 53 verses in the book of John chapter 7, and uh, I'm prepared to go through it. I didn't want to focus entirely on the Feast of Tabernacles, but I wanted to bring it up. I wanted to explain it. I wanted to refresh our minds for those of us that were here when Mark went through it, and for those of us that, uh, that weren't here, if any of you weren't here for that, you can still find that study um, by going to jewishawareness.org and going down to the Bible study section and clicking on live video archives. And you'll just have to go through it until you see the one that says Feast of Tabernacles. But for those of you that haven't, I wanted to be able to give you a summary, not a exhaustive explanation of the Feast of Tabernacles, but because we're going to try and get through all of John chapter 7, and this is the context, this is the setting, I wanted to mention it. <coughs> okay, so... Jesus is in Galilee. He's in northern Israel. Back in John chapter 5, about a year ago, it was possibly the Feast of Tabernacles even then. Back in John chapter 5, it says that there was a feast of the Jews. And as far as the names of the feasts of Israel go, there's only one that is referred to as the feast. It, it isn't named specifically, it's just the feast. And the only one that we have in scripture that is given that title, the feast, is the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's one of three pilgrimage feasts. There was three feasts of Israel that the Jewish males were required to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate. The rest of the family could go too, but the men were the ones that were required to go. And that was the Feast of Uh, tabernacles, as I mentioned, but also Passover and also Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, a.k.a. Pentecost. 
That's why all those Jewish men were in uh, Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2. Because they had, uh, you know, gone through the pilgrimage of going up to Jerusalem for Shavuot, the Feast of, of Weeks, Pentecost. But here, this is tabernacles. Okay. Um, back then, John chapter 5, okay, only two chapters ago. And yes, I believe that based on the information that we have, that John chapter 5 is tabernacles. John chapter 7 is, again, tabernacles, making it a year between those two chapters transpiring. That's as best we can tell. John chapter 7 is definitely the Feast of Tabernacles. It's, it's, it's mentioned specifically. John chapter 5, um, the best that we can gather, and this is Mark's opinion as well, is that um, th that is also speaking of the same feast a year previous to this. <coughs> okay. So back in John chapter 5, at that feast, the Judean Jewish religious crowd plotted to kill Jesus. Okay, there... Uh, as we go through John, uh, things kind of progress with the religious leaders, specifically the Judean Jews. That's where the seat of authority was. That's where the Sanhedrin was. That's where the chief priests were. Of course, they're going to be in Jerusalem. There's not going to be any chief priest in Galilee. Um, so anyway, that's where the seat of authority and the seat of, of, of religious affairs is. And those are the ones that had the most problem with Jesus. Did the everyday... Um, Israelite Jew, whether they were, I don't know, in Jericho near Jordan or if they were up in Galilee or if they were in between, um, which is not as um, likely given that Samaria was kind of off limits to most Jewish people. But the everyday Jewish person in Jesus' day didn't have the same... Um, validity, or um, what am I looking for? Hostility towards Jesus and his ministry, as did the religious leaders. And I've mentioned this before, but I think it's probably good to mention it again. When we see in John the phrase, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, is that referring to the Jewish people as opposed to the Gentiles? No, not necessarily. Because everybody that's being dealt with, the disciples, Jesus' brethren, those that accept him, those that refuse him, throughout the Gospels, by and far, are all Jewish. Okay, we see people like the, the, the Gentile woman that besought Jesus, and he said, um, you know, it's not meat to give, you know, to the dogs the, uh, the children's food. And she says, yes, Lord, but the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And he said, I've not seen so great faith all in Israel. That was a Gentile woman. But most of the interactions that we see in the Gospels that Jesus had with people most of them were entirely Jewish, those that accepted him and those that didn't. So what's the delineation with the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews? Well, there's two things about that. Number one, the book of John is very, 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 very Jewish, but it is written to a worldwide audience. Okay, so John and the Holy Spirit, most importantly, the Lord himself wanted us to understand through his word that uh, the people that are being spoken of are Jewish as opposed to my friend down the road, you know, or everybody else or whoever it was that I descended from, you know, where, wherever you may uh, have uh, lineage. And so that's part of it. The other part of it is the designation, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, we're going to see this in this chapter, is um, speaking specifically of the term in Greek is the eudioi. The Udioi. 
And that's the, the term that's translated oftentimes the Jews, as you see in scripture, that's the Greek term for it, eudioi. And that term is referring specifically to like the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, not just the everyday Jewish person like Matthew, whose Jewish name was Levi, or Peter, uh, known as Simon. Those were just the everyday Jewish people. But when the Bible in the book of John specifically talks about the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews sought to kill him, does that mean that every single Jewish person in all of Israel? No, it's speaking specifically of the Judean religious leadership. And so some people, um, some Jewish people, that um, read into what's said in Scripture, either that or they don't read into it enough, uh, if you know what I mean. They, it's, it's easy for somebody on the surface to look at this book from an American perspective, <coughs> or even from just a Jewish perspective, not entirely understanding um, the Jewish nature of the Gospels, and when they see the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, they assume, well, this is an anti-Semitic book. You know, the Jews are the bad guys. And no, not it at all, okay? Um, everybody was Jewish. <laughs> and so when it speaks of the Jews seeking to kill him, it's not everybody, it's not the whole nation. Although nationally, as a whole, the nation rejected him as their Messiah. But those that are being speak, spoken of here that have such an incredible hostility towards Jesus are specifically the Jewish religious leadership. Those are the ones that are plotting to kill him. Okay, and that's kind of a bit of a background there, but hopefully that kind of sets the stage as we look into this to help us have clear minds and to rightly divide the word of truth, to look at it clearly. Yes? Is this the only time in the Gospels where the word jury, J-E-W-R-Y? You know, it may be. I'm not sure. I didn't look that up, but it may be. Um, anyway, that also uh, is speaking of being around that religious authority. Not speaking of somebody that's an Israelite, that's Jewish by descent, but speaking specifically of the Jewish religious crowd. So that doesn't mean that Galilee was all Gentiles No, it was, a, it, it was a mix. I mean, there was Gentiles there for sure, but there was also Jews. There was northern Jews. I mean, Jesus' disciples were pretty much entirely from the area of Galilee. They were Jewish, <coughs> every last one of them. And so, yes, Okay, so, uh, the Judean religious uh, crowd, I'm still in the intro. Boy, hopefully I can get through this, okay? The Jewish religious crowd plotted to kill Jesus for healing an impotent man on the Sabbath. Do you remember that? Okay, that man that was uh, 38 years, he, he couldn't walk, and Jesus said, arise, take up your bed and walk, and it was the Sabbath, dun, 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 you know? And immediately they got on his case, and this was in Jerusalem, okay? Um... And they sought to, the Bible says, they sought to kill him. They plotted to, to take away his life for what he had done um, and for who he proclaimed to be. The feast has come again. The Jewish men are going to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, okay, as I mentioned earlier. And by the way, if we don't get through John chapter 7 tonight, that's no big deal. I want us to be able to do it justice and not to fly through it either. Okay, so, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, somebody that's looking at this from an anti-Semitic standpoint, or from a Jewish standpoint that wants to make it seem anti-Semitic, or from 
a Gentile perspective that somebody that doesn't like the Jewish people, okay, which I guess we had a lot of that going on in the South not too long ago, and it still uh, is very much in force in this world today, anti-Semitism. If somebody wants to blame the New Testament, they'll look at this passage and they'll say, the Jews sought to kill Jesus. Well, Jesus was a Jew. His brethren were Jewish. We're going to read about them just in a couple minutes. His disciples were Jewish. Pretty much everybody in the multitudes that he talked to were mostly Jewish, those that believed and those that didn't. So again, the Jews that sought to kill him, when it says the Jews specifically, it's the Judean religious authorities. Okay? Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Now, in that reference, I believe that verse 2, when it says the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles, that's that other side of the coin. Remember how I said there was two main reasons that the word the Jews is used? To speak of the Judean religious leadership, and the other side of it being that the audience that God knew would read the book of John would have to know, okay, this was a feast of the Jewish people. You know what I'm saying? And so, it's for the Gentiles of the world to be able to recognize whose feast this was. Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. I have there uh, a little um, Hebrew idiom for you that's kind of neat. You ever see somebody that's like on the side of the road with a, you know, the end is, 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 is near. The end is, you know, and in Scripture, in the New Testament, over and over and over, we have the phrase at hand. And Ken knows about this. Anybody in my Hebrew class probably remembers me saying this at least once. Um, why do we say something's at hand? Well, some, somebody will ask sometimes, you know, do you have, do you have a pair of scissors? Well, uh, not on hand, you know, or not at hand, meaning I can't, I can't grab it, you know, right now. But why does it say the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand? That is a Hebrew, that is a Hebrew expression. It's from the Hebrew Bible. It's from what we call the Old Testament, okay? Mark would call it the earlier scriptures. And so the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, there's an expression, at hand, al-yad, or on hand, al-yad. Al-yad is taken to mean it's near. That's a Hebrew expression. So um, when you say something's at hand, you know, and those guys with those things, you know, the end is at hand or whatever, um, that's the expression that is behind that. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek. It doesn't say in Hebrew, the Feast of Tabernacles was al-yad. It doesn't say that. But in the New Testament, even though it was written in Greek, there's Hebrew expressions behind it. There's Hebrew expressions undergirding it. Like, for instance, when Jesus said, if your eye be single, the whole body is full of light. Um, but if your eye be evil, the whole body is full of darkness. And an evil eye was a Hebrew idiom that meant to be stingy with your money. And there's stuff like that all throughout the New Testament. Even though it was written in Greek, it was a Jewish Greek. Okay, it was kind of like, I think I mentioned this before. Boy, I'm repeating myself over and over and over. If we wanted to say, you know, in Spanish, and I have to ask Donna because she's the Spanish scholar back there. <laughs> if, uh, if you were going to say in Spanish, you know, it's raining cats and dogs like it did today. That might not be something that in Mexico or Spain that they would recognize as a valid expression. I'm not sure if they do or not. But here in America, you know, if it's raining like crazy, we'd say it's raining cats and dogs. Well, if you went over to, you know, Mexico or Spain and you said in Spanish that it was raining cats and dogs, they might not understand, you know, what you're saying. 
You're not saying it in English, you're saying it in a different language. And so the same thing is true with the Greek of the New Testament. It's a very Jewish Greek. Okay, it's not like Socrates or Plato, like classical Greek. It's very different. It's very Jewish. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> One thing I don't like about this thing is I can't, you know, clear my throat or cough without blasting everybody's eardrums off. Okay, so the Feast of Tabernacles. Just to give you some background to the Feast of Tabernacles, and again, this isn't going to be the focus, but just to give you some background. The 15th day of the seventh month, a seven-day feast beginning with a Sabbath and having a Sabbath on day eight as well. Okay, so it's seven days long, and the eighth day is kind of a Sabbath of itself. And the month, the seventh month, is the month Tishrei. Tishrei, or sometimes it's spelled Tishri. Okay, the seventh, or I'm sorry, the 15th day of Tishrei is a feast of ingathering, okay, where they would bring in the crops. This is like a harvest celebration is what it is, Feast of Tabernacles. They would gather in the crops. A Feast of Tabernacles where they would build booths or sukkahs, okay, sukkot um, is the name of it in Hebrew, meaning tabernacles or booths. And it's also known as, in 1 Kings chapter 8, the feast. Okay, there's that reference that I was telling you about. The feast. It's one of three pilgrimage feasts. I already mentioned that. Where all males were required to go to Jerusalem on Passover, Shavuot, which is Pentecost, and Tabernacles. To celebrate this festival, God commanded the Israelites to dwell in booths or tabernacles for seven days, Leviticus 23. These temporary structures, not completely closed to the elements, reminded the inhabitants that God is the only true source of security and peace. These booths are called sukkahs, okay? Now, a sukkah, how many of you uh, grew up on or near a farm? Okay, my wife did. And uh, across the street from her house, there was, and there still is, kind of like a tractor shed, you know, where the tractors go. And it only has like, you know, three sides and a roof. The front of it's all open. That's kind of what a sukkah was like, okay? It would have some sides. Sometimes they would make it out of branches or lattice. Then they would have a roof of some kind, but it would be at least partially open to the elements. And they would dwell in those for those seven days. Um, okay. They, they reminded the inhabitants that God is the only true source of security and peace. There are also four species, as they're called, of branches, okay, four different kinds of plants, branches, that were waved before the Lord as the people rejoice in God's goodness. Now, nowadays, I'm not sure exactly how it was done in Bible times, but nowadays in uh, Jewish circles, especially the Orthodox, they have it down to a specific set of motions where they take these four branches and they'll kind of shake them and they'll go out and then they'll turn and then they'll go that way, and they'll turn, you know, they'll keep going in a continuous direction, and then they'll go up, and then they'll go out, you know, and that's how they'll wave them before the Lord. It's kind of like, you know, shaking the branches in different directions is what they'll do. Um, and there's a Hebrew prayer that goes along with that, much like the different prayers that are done on Passover and Hanukkah. Uh, the feast embraced four features, okay? And this is just real quick here. Historical, commemorates God's deliverance of his people from Egypt and their 40 years of wilderness wandering, okay? 
because they dwelt in booths or tabernacles, temporary structures, kind of like tents maybe. They dwelt in those for 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, agricultural Thanksgiving festival for the completion of the harvest. Okay, and this is the fall harvest. Usually, uh, I think this year, it's September 29th. September 29th is this year, Feast of Tabernacles. Usually it's the end of September, beginning of October. Um, sacrificially, an offering is given for a sacrifice to God. And also, it's got a pro prophetic kind of sense to it of uh, God dwelling with man, tabernacling with men. And uh, there's the note adapted from Mark Robinson's study on the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, so now we come to verse 3. His brethren. Now I have that underlined for a reason. I don't want us to get confused there. Yes. Well, thank you for that. That's a blessing. Yeah, so it's going to be very relevant to all of us, whether you're Jewish, Gentile, somewhere in between. Okay, because we're going to be there during the millennial reign. If you know Jesus as your Savior, we're going to rule and reign with him during that thousand years. Thank you for that. So I wanted us to see, and why I underlined the word brethren, is I don't want us to look at this and think, okay, disciples. Because what was John chapter 6 all about? Over and over and over and over. His disciples, his disciples, his disciples. Not only the twelve, but the multitude that followed him. Those that didn't necessarily believe he was the Messiah. Those that didn't necessarily trust him with saving faith. But they just wanted to listen to him. They wanted him to be their teacher. They wanted to kind of follow him around. Like he was some sort of guru. Okay? And their, 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 their interest or their faith was very shallow. And many of them turned away. We, we, we read just in John chapter 6, just previous to this. Many of them turned back and followed him no more. Now here, it speaks of his brethren. His brethren. Now in the scriptures, we'll see uh, Jesus' brethren referred to in a general sense. Here, I believe it's a specific sense. I believe this is his relatives. Okay, and I have, a, I have a verse here um, in Matthew chapter number 13. Keep your finger there in John chapter 7 and turn back to Matthew 13. <clears throat> this is kind of a similar reference to what we're about to read about Jesus' brethren and what they have to say. Specifically, uh, Jesus' physical family that he is related to through Mary, his half-brothers and sisters, okay? Matthew chapter 13 and verse 53. <coughs> Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 53 through 58, through the end of the chapter. And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence, and when, he was coming to, uh, and when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished, and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is, this not, uh, is not his mother called Mary, and his brethren James, and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Did you know Jesus had sisters? Okay. Half-sisters, because he had, they had the same mother, okay, Mary. Are they not all with us? Whence hath this men then all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, and this is kind of similar to what we're about to read in John chapter 7, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and is in his own house. 
and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What we find, and we're not, we, we kind of can get a sense of what Jesus' family was like, okay? Other than the ones that trusted him and believed in him and followed him and were his disciples, okay? James being one of those who became the pastor at Jerusalem. But there was other, yes, but there was others that apparently they didn't, they didn't believe. They didn't believe, at least at this point, they didn't believe. Let's look and see what it says. Verse 3 of chapter 7. His brethren, not his disciples now, his brethren, okay, his family, therefore said unto him, <clears throat> because of the Feast of Tabernacles, Depart hence and go to Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. Come on, Jesus, go to, go, go to Jerusalem. Make a big show of it. Show everybody what you can do. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. You get what they're saying? You're not going to get a big following, Jesus, if you don't put yourself out there. You're not going to become, you know, rich and famous and the leader of all Israel if you don't get out there and show them what you can do. Come on, Jesus, you can do it. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Verse 5, for neither did his brethren believe in him. What a sad statement, okay? And this is Jesus' own family, I believe, okay? His relatives, humanly speaking, through Mary. This is like the world's advice to Jesus, okay? Those in politics, those in the money game, those in, you know, Hollywood, whatever. If they had advice to give to Jesus during his earthly life, It'd be, come on, go out there, get all the fame, you know, get all the following, make a big show of it. You can take this whole thing, you know, by storm if you just go out there and, and, and you know, flaunt yourself in front of all these people and show them, you know, show off, basically. This is amazing. His brethren did not yet accept the spiritual ministry of the Messiah. The idea of what they're saying comes right in line, right in line with what I believe Judas himself believed, okay? Judas Iscariot, I, I mentioned this last time, or a couple times ago. How, how, is, how is Judas referred to in his, in his full name, his full description? Judas Iscariot, okay? It's thought by many that this ties back to the Sicarii sect of Judaism, that in the first century, was, it was the Zealots. Okay, yeah, they carried a dagger, okay, those that were in the Sicarii. And if they found somebody that was sympathizing with Rome, what did they do, Bob? Yeah, okay, gave him a close shave. <laughs> and it's thought that possibly Judas was part of this group. We can see that through his actions, through his motives, through his thinking, um, you know, keeping the purse and wanting Jesus to do this or that or the other thing. His family here... His brethren kind of has the same idea. We want you to deliver us from Rome. We want you to gain a following, gain power, and take over. Go on. Go down, go down to Jerusalem and show them what you can do. Nobody that wants to be, uh, you know, famous and, 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 and powerful, you know, hides things in secret. Show them what you can do. And then it says, for neither did his brethren believe in him. What does that mean? It means that just like Judas... They were following him, okay? They were following him 
uh, as maybe their idea of a messianic figure, but their ideas did not line up at all with what the scripture teaches and what Jesus himself proclaimed about him being the spiritual deliverer and their need for salvation from their sin. That was not at all in their minds. They were salvation from Rome. Salvation from Rome is what we're looking for. Go down to Jerusalem and, 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 and show them, you know, who's boss, basically, is what they're saying. Um, they're kind of like the family members that are saying, you know, come on, go ahead. You know, go on, you can, you know, they're kind of pushing him with their own ulterior motives, their own ulterior agendas, and they probably just want to be part of this um, movement to overthrow Rome, you know? They want to be in close with the new king of Israel, I guess. Um, seems to be uh, the way that they're thinking. Uh, they wanted a king slash deliverer. Verse 5 shows their motives in wanting him to go to the feast. Neither did his brethren believe. They didn't believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hateth me, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. Now, here is a bonus question, all the way back from John chapter 2. Okay, if you can answer this, you'll get a gold star or something. Okay, so when Mary told Jesus to turn the water into wine, or she didn't even really say that, she just said, we have no wine, and expected him to do something. What did he say? He said something that has to do with, you know, woman, my, my time has not yet come. What is that usually, almost always, across the board, Jesus' time? What does it refer to? His crucifixion, his death. Okay? My time has not yet come. At the end, okay, the end of his earthly life, um, when he was, I think, praying to the Lord in Gethsemane, he said, my time has come, the hour has come, it is here now, basically. It has arrived. But here he's saying, just like he did in John chapter 2, my time's not ready yet. It's not come. Therefore, he, he, he held back a little bit before he left. Um, when he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. So Jesus stays behind for a bit because of his mission. He has a purpose and his timing. His brethren, his family members there, did not have that weight on their shoulders or that mission. They could go freely as they please and enjoy the feast. Your time's always ready. You know, go ahead. Go on down to the feast. Um, but my time's not yet come. Yet. And so he abode still in Galilee. And then when he went down, he went in, in secret. Okay? And then, in verse number 10, but when his brethren were gone up, then went he up also unto the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret, okay? He didn't go in a big show or big fashion. He just kind of went behind the scenes after they had left already. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? Okay, and you can see these things starting to get um, heated up here as we go through John chapter 7. They're looking for him, okay? Those that sought to kill him, those that um, rebuked him and reviled him for what he had done in John chapter 5 and healing the impotent man, 
on the Sabbath. They're seeking after him. Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Okay, so there's multitude of various opinions among the Jewish people in Jerusalem about Jesus. Is he a good man? Is he a deceiver? I've talked to a number of people, and if you're ever talking to somebody that is kind of on the fence in this way with their opinion about who Jesus is, and they'll say, oh, he's a good man, or he was a prophet. I believe he was a teacher. He was a rabbi in the first century. There was a, a couple that uh, I spoke to in Pensacola when we were out in the street witnessing to people, okay? And there was this older Jewish couple that I ran into, and I was talking to them about Jesus being the Messiah, the one that's prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures. And the man said to me, Jesus never wanted to start his own religion. Basically, all this stuff that's going on now is a huge mistake that, um, that Jesus never thought of, aspired to, or desired. And, but he was a good man. He was a good teacher. You can't say that. You cannot say that. He was either the Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. If somebody's going around saying, I am God, nobody comes to the Father but through me, I'm going to be lifted up and, you know, whosoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. You can't say that stuff and be a good man, just, just a good man, okay? He's either God or he is a liar, okay, a con man, or he's crazy. There's no, there's no middle ground. Jesus said, I am God. Was he or not? You know, that's, where, that's what it comes down to. And um, a lot of people that want to kind of take Jesus and make him fit into their mold, okay, like the famous rabbi, Rabbi, rabbi Shmuley uh, Boteach, he uh, tried to put Jesus in a box. Take everything about Jesus that he doesn't like, and just trim it off and say that that's not valid, that's not accurate scripture, that's not um, authentic, okay? And he tries to say that all this stuff was made up about Jesus claiming to be God, and, and, and he splices all these things specifically to make it so that he can, he can like Jesus now. Because he was, he was a good man, he was a good rabbi, he was a good teacher. You have to throw out everything that Jesus taught and stood for and make up some entirely different person in order to say that. You cannot say that the Jesus of the Bible was just a good man or just a prophet because if he was just a prophet, he couldn't have said those things and been truthful. You know, he said, I am God. Either he was telling the truth or not. Um, okay. And so here... In Jerusalem, there's a, big, there's a big division. There's a bunch of murmuring, a bunch of discussion. He's a good man. Oh, nope, he's a deceiver. And all these different thoughts about who Jesus is. And I, I talked about Seville Square there. Um, the sentiment is still in full force today. There's a multitude of various opinions. There's people that don't even want to name Jesus' name. Okay? They'll just refer to him as that man because there's such animosity and hatred. Um, there's others who want to fully accept him for who they want him to be, but not who the scripture says that he is. And I'm not just saying the New Testament, because if we look at just the Hebrew scriptures, okay, Genesis 
through Malachi. If we look at if we look at those writings, we will come to the same conclusion that the Messiah had to be God. And so it's not just our opinions of Jesus that are different, but it's actually what the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures teach that is also different from a lot of people's perceptions of who the Messiah was supposed to be, who Jesus was supposed to be. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. So, <clears throat> again, they're all Jewish. Every last one of them, okay? Those that are in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, they're all entirely Jewish. Who are they afraid of? The religious authorities, okay? Those that are in power, whether they be um, those of the Sanhedrin, like Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, or the chief priests, who were Sadducees, or the scribes, okay? All of those three groups are in the Jewish religious authorities that the people, the general people, the general population of Jews in Jerusalem are afraid of. Okay? They, they don't want to speak up about Jesus, especially in a favor, favorable way, because they're afraid. I have a reference here to Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man bringeth a snare. There was lots of Jewish people there who probably would have spoke up about Jesus about who they thought he was, but they kept their mouth shut because they were afraid of the Jewish religious authorities. Okay, again, they're all Jewish, but some of them are afraid of the other ones. Okay, is fear holding you back from something? We should not let fear hold us back from witnessing what others will think, how they will react, what somebody will say. Some of my, one of my coworkers, or you know, fill in the blank. We should not let that fear hold us back from trusting the Lord. Okay, and there was many in Jesus's day, some of them that took the step of faith, and some of them that let fear paralyze them from moving forward and accepting the truth. And we need not to let that happen either. Now, about the midst of the feast. Jesus went up into the temple and taught. I can just picture this. How many of you guys have been to Israel with us? Okay, how many of you need to go? <laughs> I'll put it that way. There's two groups in here, those that have been to Israel and those that need to go. Um, it's amazing to look at this passage and to imagine Jesus walking up those steps, going up to the Temple Mount and teaching. And that's exactly what he did here. And much of that structure, the Temple Mount, I'm saying now, okay, and the steps leading up to it, the steps of ascent, the southern steps and the first century streets that were there are still there today. And I just find it amazing and gripping to think about that. Um, okay, so about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Now, how many of you like grammar? Okay, I, I don't, <laughs> okay. Um, I kind of like it in Hebrew a little bit because it helps me understand things and clarify things that otherwise would drive me nuts. But here, the word letters, how knoweth this man letters, is the Greek word grama. Okay, like grandma, I guess. Is that how you say gr grandma? I don't, I don't normally say grandma, I say grandma, uh, referring to my grandmother, Okay. But that's the Greek word here, gram grama. And I'm assuming that it's the word we get the English word grammar from. Okay? And this word is translated a couple of different ways. 
How knoweth this man letters having never learned? In, I think it's Second Timothy, where Paul says to Timothy, from a, script, from, from, from a youth thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. Okay? From a youth thou hast learned the Holy Scriptures. Guess which word there is grama? Scriptures. Okay? Scriptures. It's also translated as learning. Um, was it um, Felix or Festus? Somebody told Paul, much learning doth make thee mad. Okay? Much learning. That's this word, grama. Okay? So it can be learning. It can be letters. It can be scripture. The basic idea of it, and I believe in this instance, it kind of has the idea of the scriptures. That's what he's teaching. That's what he's talking about. It's not, uh, when I used to look at this, you know, letters. A couple different things come into my mind. Uh, how many of you remember letter jackets? When you were in like high school? Okay. So I was, I was on the varsity hockey team my senior year, but I was horrible. I still wanted to get a letter jacket. I thought it'd be cool, you know, hockey on the back. Um, but I didn't. It was like $250 for somebody that's in high school. It's, anyway, um, that's the first thing that I think of when, you know, letters. <laughs> um, did you get your letters, you know? Um, but the other thing that I thought of is um, like a PhD, you know, or THD, these different doctorates and stuff. But that's not at all what it's talking about. It's talking about how does this, how does this man have learning? And that learning is specifically in the realm of the scripture. How does this man know the scriptures? How does he know all of these prophecies and, the, and you know, the Torah? How does he know all of these laws backwards, forwards, inside out? And he has authority when he teaches about them and speaks about them. How does this man do all of this stuff, having never learned? And Jesus answered them. He gives them the answer and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Now, what is the one letter, or one, sorry, one, one letter. What is the one word theme, as far as I've taught, of the book of John? It starts with the letter A. The what of Jesus? The authority, okay? We're going to see that over and over and over and over and over again. We see it right here. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Jesus wants them to connect the one that he refers to as his father, God the Father. He wants them to connect him with Jesus. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. What did Jesus say that his will was? Mm -hmm. And he, he spoke in, I think it was John chapter 6, when they asked him, what work must we do? What, what work of God, you know? And he says, this is the work of God, that you believe on him that sent me and believe on me, you know, and you'll have everlasting life and I'll raise you up in the last day, John chapter 6. And so his desire is that they would trust him, that they would believe what he's saying. If any man will do his will, he shall, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He's just saying, trust me. Trust me. Try me in this. Prove me, you know? Step out by faith, and you'll know. You'll know if what I'm speaking is true. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. I can just kind of imagine um, in the back of Jesus' mind, or at least in the context of John, in this passage, going back to the beginning, John chapter 7, where his brethren, what they try and get him to do? Go and, 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 and make a big show and, and, and make somebody of yourself in front of all these Jewish people in the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And what does Jesus say right here in, in, in verse number 18? He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. I can almost, you know, he's kind of taken a stab at what his brethren were trying to get him to do. You want me to seek my own glory. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. And so there's all kinds of things in the book of John. Uh, even just going back to chapter 5, all of these things are compounding and compounding and compounding where there's those that are kind of on the edge of their seat and they're about ready to take that step and trust him and believe in him. But there's also this fear of those that are watching like huge peer pressure. And then there's others that are on the edge of their seat getting ready to tackle him because they're just so incensed and enraged at what he is saying and what he proclaims. And he's building upon that in this chapter what he already um, spoke of in the previous couple of chapters. And just a couple chapters ago, John chapter 5, if we're correct in our assumption that it is also the Feast of Tabernacles, back in John chapter 2, the end of John chapter 2, it was the Feast of Passover in Jerusalem again at the temple teaching. And so there's this same crowd here. Um, Nicodemus, we're going to see in a minute, he pops up again. Nicodemus is there, of course. And uh, it's very likely that at the Passover, at the end of John chapter 2, Nicodemus was there. John chapter 3, Nicodemus says, I've seen your miracles. I saw them in Jerusalem, okay, at the feast, at Passover. And so Nicodemus is there again at the Feast of Tabernacles, John chapter 7. But this same crowd, the same people, the same rulers, the same ones that sought to kill him in John chapter 5, the same ones that believed, the same ones that were healed, they're all there. At least the men anyway, they're all there. And they're hearing this, and it's compounding and compounding and compounding what Jesus has been teaching throughout these chapters, from our perspective, chapters, okay? And uh, the tension is rising. And when he says, he that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, he's not speaking something that they haven't heard before. He's enforcing and doubling down on what he previously told them, verse after verse after verse after chapter after chapter. Uh, after event after event in Jerusalem, they're hearing the same thing again and again and again. I do the will that, of him that sent me. I, I don't seek my own glory. I seek this, the, the glory of him that sent me. And there's no unrighteousness in me. You need to believe me. You need to trust me. And it's kind of this compounding, um, I don't want to say argument, but it's a compounding um, proclamation on Jesus's part about who he is. Jesus' teaching and authority is not from the traditions and doctrines of men, but from God. You see, those people there in the beginning of this um, section, how, how does he know the scriptures like this? Um, you know, he's, he's never learned. And Jesus basically tells them that his teaching and authority is not from man. And that's what they were so used to. They were so used to Rabbi so-and-so says this. Well, Rabbi so-and-so says this. And the school of Rabbi so-and-so believes this. And they're all at odds with each other in their interpretations of the various passages regarding the law, regarding the application of the law. Okay, And there's kind of this lack of authority. And they're jumping to one man's teachings over another. Okay, And there may be some in our circles that do the same thing. Well... I'm from such and such camp, you know, I go to such and such college, or, you know, I sat under this preacher, and he said this, you know, and we're not tying our authority back to the Word of God. 
on a much larger, much grander, much more important scale than all those fightings that we have within our circles. Jesus here is blowing the lid off of the Jewish uh, religious crowd and their teachings and their uh, saying, you know, much like Paul dealt with, people saying, I'm of, I'm of Paul, well, I'm of Apollos, you know. Um, different camps within the Jewish society there in Jerusalem, none of them had authority. The highest authority that they could claim was not God, but their rabbi. And their rabbi said this, and I'm going to hold to that, and there was kind of this uncertainty along with that. Yes? Yes, absolutely. He's exposing their hypocrisy. He's exposing their trust in man. He's exposing their traditions that, and further along, he'll do that even more specifically. But all the areas that they are falling short by trusting in man, he is exposing. And he's showing them that he is from God and that he is God and that his teachings are not from men. His teachings are not from tradition, which is prim the primary uh, source of teaching that the Jewish religious circles had in Jesus' day and still have today. Um, the majority of what's leaned on is opinions of rabbis and sages and masters and teachers. And um, Jesus is not only the Messiah, he's the Messiah and he is God in human flesh. There is no greater authority. And again, we see this as a striking theme here in the book of John. Verse 19, did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keep it the law? Can you, if, if, if you were there, okay, maybe you were uh, a member of the Sanhedrin, okay, like Nicodemus or Gamaliel, or maybe you were there and you were one of the priests and you're standing there in this huge crowd and you're listening to Jesus and seeing him talk. And he says this, did not Moses give you the law and none of you keep it? How would you take that? And if it was coming from Jesus, okay, even if I did not want to accept his authority, there was no denying that he had great power and great authority. I mean, earth-shaking authority. It's just this, the matter of many of them did not want to accept that authority, but even still it was just as powerful, just as jarring. And for him to say, did not Moses give you the law and none of you keep it? I mean, Jesus didn't mince words. He didn't beat around the bush. He told them what was wrong and what they needed to fix. And then he says this, why do you go about to kill me? Can you just imagine? I mean, you ever been in a situation like that? Maybe you were just a, a, a witness to a conversation. Okay, you saw a conversation happen and it got heated. And you're not even in the conversation. You're just listening. You're just a bystander. But all of a sudden your stomach and your heart kind of goes in your throat. You know, did he just say what he said, you know? Or did she just say what she said with that tone of voice and you just kind of clam up? I can imagine, I mean, with my, you know, sanctified imagination as we call it, I can imagine those people there, at least some of them, kind of just paralyzed with shock because nobody speaks like Jesus. Nobody is uh, speaking with such authority. He says, didn't Moses give you the law and none of you keep it? Why are you trying to kill me? I mean, how do you react to that kind of a statement from God himself in human flesh? It must have been convicting. It must have been jarring. It must have been shocking. 
And for those that had already set their hearts against him and basically seared their consciences that they were going to do all that they could to get rid of him, and they were doubling down in that sense against him, this probably just sent them into a rage, you know? How dare he publicly accuse them of plotting to kill him? And that's exactly what he did. The people answered and said, Thou hast the devil. Who, who goeth about to kill thee? Now, I don't know if this was out of sheer, sheer ignorance on some of their parts, but probably a lot of them, it was just lying through their teeth, you know? I mean, can you imagine if there was uh, peer pressure in the crowd, probably from a number of different, different directions. Some of them are, 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 are pressured into, well, I can't trust Jesus as my Savior because, or as my Messiah because, you know, my rabbi's right, right here, you know, and he'll, he'll beat me down. And, you know, possibly he'll have me kicked out of the synagogue for sure. That's what's happened a number of times in the Bible. We'll read it a number of times happening in the book of John. Uh, people being kicked out of the synagogue for accepting Jesus as their Messiah. Um, maybe there was that kind of fear, but there was also maybe that kind of fear of those that were higher up in religious authority not wanting their plot to be exposed, and maybe out of trying to clear their name falsely, they said, you're, you're, you've got a devil. You're possessed by a devil. Who's trying to kill you? You know what I mean? We, we're not told exactly what the... Um, the context or the motive or the reasoning behind this statement is, but um, you can see by the way that it's said, okay, with everything that Jesus just said there, saying that he's from God, saying that there's no unrighteousness in him at all, saying that you need to do the will of him that sent him, and then they respond by, you have a devil. You know what I'm saying? There's conviction there. He just told them, you're not keeping the law. Moses gave you the law and none of you keep it. And why go you about to kill me? And then they respond, you have a, you have a devil. Nobody's trying to kill you. They're, at the very best, at the very, very best, they are missing completely what Jesus is saying. And at the worst, which is probably more likely, they're very angry at him, and they're coming to the point of blaspheming against him and lying through their teeth that they're not trying to kill him. Okay, and there's somewhere between those two um, where, where it lies. But those are the two extremes regarding this statement. Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Now we'll see in a little bit later. Uh, I believe that this, this one work that he's speaking of, back in John chapter 5, okay, when he healed that man on the Sabbath. Because listen to what he says. I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it's of Moses, but of the fathers. Okay, was, was Moses the first person to be circumcised? Yeah, and that's why he's speaking here of the fathers. Okay, Abraham had all those males in his household circumcised. Okay, as a sign of the covenant between him and God. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. Leviticus 12.3 If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Now that shows us the context of Jesus' one work that he's referring to back in John chapter 5 when he healed the man, the lame man, on the Sabbath day. And they first sought to kill him, okay, for doing that. But here, on the eighth day, uh, you, um, 
you know, on the eighth day, uh, a man should be circumcised, written in, uh, I have the reference there, Leviticus 12.3, and if that eighth day happens to fall on the Sabbath, guess what? They're still going to circumcise that baby, okay, on the eighth day, even if it's on the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, you'll still do that if a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I've, I've healed a man on the Sabbath day? I've made a man every whit completely. I've made him completely whole on the Sabbath day. And so I have the references there to John 5. Let's turn back a page in your Bibles, John 5 and verse 8. We've got to go a couple more pages. John 5, verse 8 and 9, where he says to the impotent man, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Okay, this is what Jesus is referencing in chapter 7 and verse number 21. So then he says to them in verse 24, Judge not according to a, the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Okay, he's just kind of pleading with them. He's trying to reason with them. He speaks to them about where his doctrine is from. He speaks to them about the will of God. He speaks to them about their own sin and not, um, what's the word? They're failing to keep the law. Okay, and he speaks to them about all these different things. And then he says, judge, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Okay, he's, he's reasoning with them, judge, judge righteously. When you look at me, when you hear what I have to say, okay, use your, use your brains. And you'll, you'll, you'll see the truth if you look at me with an unbiased eye. And then some of them of Jerusalem said, verse 25, is not this he whom they seek to kill. But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very, uh, this is the very Christ? So there's a, a mixed group of people here as far as their reactions to Jesus and their various um, levels of, of belief and trusting who Jesus is. Some believing that he's the Christ, the Messiah, the very Messiah himself. Others saying that he has a devil and seeking to kill him. Howbeit, we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. So, um, and this kind of sentiment is repeated a little bit later in this chapter. We know where this guy is from, but when Christ comes, when Messiah comes, no man's going to know where he's from or where he's, you know, coming from. But we know, we know this, we know this man, just like in Matthew, is this not, you know, Mary's son? And Joseph the carpenter and, and, and his brethren and sisters, we know. It's kind of the same, same thought. And so there's this kind of teetering between believing and not believing. And then in verse 28, then, Jesus uh, then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, now this is, it's kind of like Jesus is lifting up his voice, okay, more loudly now. He's proclaiming and, uh, and, and crying out. You both know me and know whence I am. You know where I'm from. I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. 
Then they sought to take him. But no man laid hands on him. I love this passage. No man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. None can hinder God's working through our circumstances. Okay? Satan can have his plans and his desires and his wiles, as it says in Scripture, his plans, his, his, uh, his schemes. But he can never, ever, ever, ever do anything without God allowing it. Okay? He's like a dog on a leash. I was telling somebody, I think it was my son Seth, he was scared about something. Um, yeah, he was just being bothered. Um, anyway, we told him that, okay, we have, this, we have this dog across the street, and it's a beagle. I think it's a beagle. Are the beagles the annoying ones? Maybe it's some kind of like a beagle hound, you know? It's like, like at, at all hours of the day in the morning. Anyway, and this, and this dog, he'll charge at you, trying to, you know, whatever. They have an electric fence there. I said, Seth, Satan is like that annoying dog across the street. Okay? He can annoy you like crazy. He seems fierce. He can trouble you at all hours of the day. But when it comes down to it, he's just an annoying dog that has an electric fence, you know. Uh, he's, he's on a leash. He can only go as far as God will let him go. Um, we're told to just resist him, and he'll flee. Um, where was I going with this one? Oh, okay, so yeah, nothing happens to us without God allowing it. Nothing. So we need to trust the Lord and trust his timing. Here, there was many that would have taken Jesus right then and there, that would have you know, desired to kill him. Could they do it? No. Okay? Because why? Jesus' time had not yet come. And so, in, in the whole teaching, and Mark has mentioned this before, because there's thought to be two main camps regarding the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. There's the sovereignty of God, and there's the free will, and never the twain shall meet, and there's those on this side, and there's those on this side. Neither of those camps really want to agree on the fact that there is a third option, okay, where we believe fully in the sovereignty of God. And we believe also that he has given us free will. Okay, how else could they limit the Holy One of Israel by their unbelief? How else could they resist the Holy Ghost? And we spoke about this going through John with, um, you know, the Father drawing. What does that mean? Does it mean that God will irresistibly draw somebody to get saved and they're going to get saved like a robot flipping a switch you're, and, and, and you're going to get saved and you're not? Um, we talked about that. But also the fact that God is sovereign and he works in and through the circumstances of men. He works in and through and in response, and this is an amazing truth, but he works in and through and in response to our choices. How does that work? Well, when we cry out to him in repentance, and say, Lord, save me, forgive me, okay? As his Holy Spirit convicts us, and we say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. What does he do? He then responds to our faith. He responds to our repentance. In the same way, he will respond to sin in the life of a believer by bringing chastisement. He will respond to, um, you know, all kinds of different choices we make. As a believer, if we do something that we mess up, Okay, we'll have consequences of that, but God will 
still work in and through what happens next. Okay, and we see that a number of different times in Scripture. A good example of that is King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, it was already told him that he was basically going to do this thing where he turns into uh, a wild beast and eats grass like an ox, you know, and he's kind of uh, beside himself about this prophecy of his undoing. And what does Daniel say? Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you need to humble yourself and pray because who can tell whether God will be gracious and, you know, in some way, shape, or form have mercy or lessen that thing happening? There's a balance there. There is the free will of man. We have a choice. We can respond to God or we can resist him. And then God also works in and through that. Yes. Yeah. and he knew what he was going to do. Yeah. Yep. Well, in the same way, okay, God works through foreknowledge, okay, knowing beforehand that Judas would do all those things. And I think it says that either in this passage or in John chapter 17, um, knowing that he would betray him. Let's see here. Okay. John chapter 6, verse 64. There are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Okay, he knew from the beginning that he would betray him. The question would be, um, did Jesus choose Judas today because there was probably some assumptions made that I don't believe so. I believe that Jesus knew full well Judas's beginning, Judas's middle, and Judas's end. And knowing how Judas and his actions would unravel, he chose him to be an apostle, knowing that he would do what he would do. Not that he made Judas do any of those things, but that as we read through Scripture here, specifically verses 64 and 70, and also I think in John chapter 17, um, Judas, in the same way that sometimes the Lord uses or has used in the Old Testament um, wicked nations to accomplish his will, same thing. So at one point he calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant for bringing judgment upon the nation of Israel and Judah. Um, and so God uses those kind of people and nations and groups to do his will, um, not that he necessarily makes them do anything, but he orchestrates in and through them, and his sovereignty and their choices work in harmony in those instances. Well, there's many passages, like for instance, in, in, the, um, in the New Testament talks about, you know, Scripture being fulfilled. That doesn't necessarily mean that, okay, I have to now do this because the Scripture says so. Well, I mean, I think he knew it, but I mean, the reason he picked him 
Well, yes. I mean, there's definitely there, there's definitely prophecies. You know, my own familiar friend has lifted up his hand against me, something along those lines. And there's other passages as well, um, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yet we see that a number of different times in regards to um, people resisting the Holy Spirit, resisting His working in their lives. Um, and so, looking at everything in context, instead of picking this verse or that verse, um, kind of the truth lies in the, the whole picture. No, I believe that. I believe all men, okay? Uh, th- 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 there's, not, there's not one uh, that um, does not have the capability of, of, of getting saved. That one is in, in, impossible to get saved. It's just the fact that Judas, through his actions, through his motives, through everything that would transpire, uh, God foreknowing that all those things, Jesus knowing from the beginning that he would betray him, still chose him. But that's not saying that, okay, I'm going to pick that one. He's going to be the one that's going to betray me and he will never get saved. That's not how it happened. Yep. Was there a couple of more questions? I don't want to miss anybody. Absolutely. 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 Yep. Absolutely. In that passage, in that passage is a great example of the foreknowledge of God. You he's know, yeah. You don't believe that he specifically knew what specifically Judas would specifically do? Did I say specifically enough? Well, I think he did. That's what I'm saying. I, yeah, I think, he, I, I think he did. I think he knew every single instance of specifically what Judas was going to do. But Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and he called. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Oh, that was another one. It was forgetting somebody. Do you believe, I do, I can or y'all do, that God uses evil people, bad people today? <coughs> yeah, yeah. The, 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 the heart of the king, good or bad, evil or, or, or wicked, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it however he will. 
You know, and if, 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 if the spirit of a nation is wicked, God very, very well may give that nation a wicked king to make wicked proclamations and drive that nation further in a wicked direction, you know, like we've had here in America a couple times. <laughs> and, uh, and other nations, other nations as well, not just America, other nations have had that same process, and I believe that they still do. Not only do we see that in, uh, you know, the, the Bible, and specifically the Old Testament time period, but we see that in modern day. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so let's see where we can get to in the next couple of minutes here. Um, all right, let's see if we can... Let's see if we can finish down to verse 36 here. Okay. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? Now, when we look at that passage and that verse, kind of makes you scratch your head for a second or do a double take. What are they, what are they saying? Now, this is the crowd that believed on him. Now, we need to be careful because many times in the book of John, we're going to see it again in John chapter 8, Many times we're going to see a crowd believing, quote-unquote, on Jesus. What does that mean? Yes, and that goes along exactly with what Mark has been teaching in Hebrews. Okay? They're kind of on the fence about receiving him. There's those that believe and there's those that receive. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Um, there's those that uh, the scripture says, I think it was in chapter number 6, um, those that believed, quote-unquote, and then they turn on Jesus, and they say, this, this isn't true, and then they walk away. And it's not, it's not a question of, okay, they were saved, they believed, and now they're lost. No, that's not it at all. They were never saved. Um, they were believing in the sense of, all right, I'm listening. I'm agreeing with you up to this point. Tell me some more. And, um, but here, when this crowd that is, their ears are open to, to his sayings. Okay, so far up to this point, they are the, those that believe. They are listening to him. They are agreeing with him. They are kind of curious for what's said next. They're professing. Okay, they are um, listening to him, and they say, "When Christ cometh, when Messiah comes, will he do more miracles than that which this man has done?" I believe here that this is a statement of faith. I don't believe it's a statement of criticism. You know, th this guy, he's not the Messiah, cause, but when, when Messiah comes, won't he do more miracles? No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying, can, can the Messiah, you know, if, 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 if there are those that are still waiting for the Messiah to come, is he going to do more miracles than this? You know, and it's basically a statement of this is the Messiah. You know, this has to be the Messiah. Is the Messiah going to do more than this guy's doing? It, that's kind of how I take it anyway. And not only because we have the statement prior to it that they believed on him, but we have the statement afterward with the Pharisees' reaction to that statement. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Okay, so at this point, there's division. There's those that say he's a good man. There's those that say he deceives the people. There's those that say he has a devil. There's those that are believing on him. There's those that are saying... When the Messiah comes, is he going to do more works than this guy? You know, I mean, this has to be the Messiah. That's how I take it anyway. And then the Pharisees, when they hear that statement, when Christ comes, he's going to do more works than this, this man? The Pharisees' 
take him down, go get him. You know, they get upset because the people are, are, are teetering towards listening to Jesus. Some of them are. And they sent uh, Pharisees and chief priests. You know who that is? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, who never really get along, but they're getting along with the common goal of getting rid of their problem. Okay? And again, everybody's Jewish. Everybody. Okay? Those that seek to kill Jesus, those that are believing on him, those that are on the fence, everybody in this whole crowd is Jewish. It's just that the specific religious authorities, a.k.a. the Pharisees and the chief priests, they're unhappy. They got the most to lose by giving in to Jesus' teaching, by believing Jesus' teaching, by accepting Jesus' teaching. They got the most to lose. They got authority by man. They got power, pos position, prestige. What other word can I think of? They are the ones that have the most to lose, and they are the most hardened against accepting Jesus. They send officers to take him. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while, and I am with you. And then I go unto him that sent me. Now, all of this kind of relates to Jesus saying, My time is not yet come. My time is not yet come. And when he's about to go to the cross, he says, The hour is come. My time is come. Here, they're seeking men, uh, sending officers to take Jesus. Because they're plotting to, to do away with him. They're plotting to dispatch him, to kill him. And then Jesus says, yet a little while and I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be alive a little while longer. But then I go unto him that sent me, and ye shall seek me and not find me. And where I am, thither ye cannot come. Referring to his death, okay? And ascension to the Father. Then said the Jews among themselves, again, the Jews. Now these people are all Jewish, aren't they? Yes. Those that believe, those that made the statement, those that, you know, all of them, they're all Jewish. So why does it say the Jews? Who are the Jews again in the book of John, usually referring to? The leaders, okay, the leaders. I mentioned that Greek word, eudioi, okay, the, the chief priests, the rulers, the Jewish religious authorities, then said the Jews among themselves. This is not the Jewish people in a whole. This is the group of religious leaders. They said among themselves, Whither will he go that we shall not find him? Will he go on to be dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? He's going to go teach the Goyim? Is that why he's saying where he's going, we can't come? You know, that's what they're saying. What manner of saying is this, that he said, Ye shall seek me and shall not find me, and whether I am, ye cannot come. This speaks of Jesus' death and his ascension to the Father. So we see this kind of thing getting heightened up. We will continue with the rest of this next time. Bob's shaking his head. I failed you. <laughs> Is there any um, questions, comments, or discussion before we get into the goodies? Okay. All right, well, I'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer, and, uh, and then we'll be done. Thank you, Lord, once again for this evening that you've given to us. Thank you for the power and authority of Jesus. Thank you for his, his teaching, his words. Thank you for his providing salvation for all of us. We pray, Lord, that you'd work in our lives, in our midst, whatever we're going through. If it has to do with fear of man, if it has to do with trusting you to do your will, if it has to do with our circumstances and trusting that you're in control, I pray that you would help us in all those areas, meet the needs that are here. pray that you bless the uh,
food that's been prepared and help us to have a good rest of the night tonight. And thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.